Don't be insane. No, we, we prefer the insanity. Okay, let me stop this thing quick. Hello and good evening. Welcome to episode 20 of ZA Dev Chat. Tonight we've got a bit of a discussion uh, with uh, Peter Hamases. Hello, Peter. Hello from North Lithuania. Oh, awesome. You're going to tell us all about that. We've also got uh, Kevin on the line. Hi, Kevin. Hi, how's it going? Cool, man. And Kenneth. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. All right, so we've... Uh, We've got Peter, and he's just come back from Lithuania. And uh, Peter, why don't you, first of all, I guess, just give the listeners a bit of an intro, tell them who you are and uh, what brings you to programming in general, and then we can jump into what you were doing in Lithuania. Awesome. Okay, well, my name is Peter, clearly, um, unless I forgot or unless I lost my name in Lithuania and I left it there. Um, software developer. I currently work for a company called um, Event Store. Uh, it's a stream database. And the way that I got into programming is I like computer games. So it seems to be the basically the norm for most of us devs. And I was in Lithuania for a com- for a conference called Build Stuff, uh, which just ended last week, which was quite cool. Okay, awesome. How it was quite a long time you were away, wasn't it? You were sort of away almost two weeks. Uh, or so I wish. No, it was. Um, yeah, it was. I was gone for like seven. No, so nine days. Um, so uh, a day lost in travel back and forth. And okay, yeah. So the conference was three days and then two days of workshops. This was in a place called Vilnius. Yes, for the South Africans that want to go there. Um, it's quite a train wreck um, trying to get visa sorted. Um, so I don't know if you guys want to hear all the boring details, but it wasn't as simple as I initially thought. Okay, well, I've, the only place I've ever heard of Vilnius was in the hunt for Red October. So it sounds very like romantic and awesome. But you said it was a mission to get there. Oh, yeah. So obviously we don't have to have a Lithuanian consulate in South Africa, so you have to apply through the Hungary consulate. And I basically went up there and um, took the day off, went up to Joburg, went to the Hungary consulate and had to explain to them why my wife and my child was not going with me to a country that nobody wants to go on holiday with on a tourist visa. Um, (laughs) So that was not fun. Um, So it took me half a day to try and explain to the lady that there is a conference there, even though it's a very unknown country or place. So can I please go there and visit my friends? and after much deliberation, they granted me a nine-day visa. Yeah, I find that like truly weird. Like you have to come in at this time and leave exactly by this time, kind of thing. Yeah, it's not like I'm going to take some guy's job there. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Are they worried that you know we're invading? <laughs> <laughs> Incoming. Yeah, Durban takes over Vilnius. Oh dear. All right, and then, but I mean, why, why this conference? Why build stuff? So, for the listeners, the it's buildstuff.lt. Yeah, so um, I've been, I've been meaning to, or I've been wanting to go to an international conference 
um, for a very long time. And um, choosing the right one is quite quite difficult for us, right? Because we don't have the luxury of like just traveling everywhere and just going to conferences all year long. So yeah. um, what drew me to build stuff was the fact, that, first of all, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Greg, uh, Greg Young, the guy that coined the term CQRS. Him and his um, wife, wife um, organized this conference. So there's a big win to to actually go there as well as the the high caliber of speakers that go there. I mean, if if you're a software developer and you haven't heard of the likes of um, Uncle Bob Martin or um, Randy Shoup, then yeah, then <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, that that counts us out. I've heard of Uncle Bob, but not Randy. Right. Okay. So Michael Feathers, you've heard of him? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So the high caliber of speakers actually drew me to the conference as well, um, which is awesome. So. And I've never been to Lithuania before, and I like traveling. Yeah, I'm just looking at the list of speakers here. It's quite a roundup. Oh yes, oh, yes. They, yeah, they, they definitely make a point of it to actually get some of the world's um, best speakers, as well as the world's most influential people. Like, um, so everybody's probably familiar with Conway's Law, um, mm. coined by a guy called Melvin Conway. He was there. Um, he did some. He showed us some of his some of the stuff that he's been working on, which is quite cool. He gave a, the keynote on the second day. Okay, cool. That's that's super interesting. Um, what is Conway's law? So, organizations which design systems are constrained to produce designs which are copies of the communication structures of these organizations. Cited Wikipedia. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay, that's quite a mind-bending law. I'd never really heard of it. As such, what did he have to say? So, um, what what I'd actually like to do is actually mm. start from day one and take you guys through what I thought was like kind of like the highlights, and then we can um, pick into each of these um, talks as we go along, which I think is a, is a nice way to work through it. Since he's on day two, um, we'll probably tackle him on at that point. Okay, okay. that sounds perfect. Yeah. So, obviously, first day there. Um, Uncle Bob Martin kicked it off. Uh, he was the keynote speaker on day one, and um, he changed. He actually changed his talk from the talk that was actually listed on on the website um, to I think the future of programming or the future, yeah, something like that. Um, the last programming language. Yeah. So he actually changed it. He changed the title, and he basically uh, spoke about how much power developers have, and they don't realize it yet. Um, so, like the takeaways um, from the talk was basically like we're. Um, he actually started off with going through the history of computers. So he started off with Alan Turing and what his influence in, in the world of developers or like the world in computing is. Yeah, and he basically said that you know, um, the whole point was that every five years the number of developers doubled uh, since nineteen fifty. Um, so we're always in a state of perpetual inexperience, right? Like, um, is, is that still happening today? So I actually don't know because I don't have the numbers, but it yeah, was yeah. true up until quite recently. Um, wow, that's amazing. And what what is scary about that is that uh, half of the developers on the planet would then have like less than five years of experience, right? Yes, yes. Uh, that's quite a scary thing. So Alan Turing... Um, 
because there was no computer science back in those days, where did they source programmers from? Well, they source programmers from um, like proper scientific and industry experts. So industry, uh, so scientific or well, not mathematicians, engineers, and people like that, because they were your experienced, um, like, you know, professors type of type of guys, because there was no computer science back then. It was pretty much just these guys, right? Like you trust them to, to do stuff properly. Sure. I mean, almost everything is original thought, right? Correct. So, um, and like, it's, it's funny how we've, um, so I think Uncle Bob mentioned that he was, he's actually of the first generation of career software developers, like people that actually went to university to go study software engineering or computer science. Um, and up to that point, developers were always sourced from your your scientific or your engineering industries, um, people with a vast majority of or vast amounts of experience and discipline, and um, it's it's funny because and Turing actually mentions it. Um, he said one of our difficulties will be the maintenance of an appropriate discipline so that we will not lose track of what we are doing. And yeah. it's, it's funny how a lot of developers like hack away at stuff and then like they like completely lose sight of what they're supposed to be doing right like they're just churning out code like what are you doing like i'm just <laughs> just writing this code man and we get to higher and higher levels of abstraction and we still don't actually know <laughs> well, it, yeah. it ties ties into that quote from steve mcconnell where he says something like uh for him the it industry is characterized as being one that never learns from its mistakes <laughs> oh that is so true yeah, which is kind of what you were saying, like, well, you know, just kind of, how do we remember stuff when we're not actually in a formal discipline? Correct. So it's, it's, so basically, um, he kept on, he, kept, he basically set the, set the bar for what is happening in our industry and what the, what our responsibility is in the industry, um, and what the repercussions is or are of what we are doing. So for instance, we could end up killing people, right? Like that's, that is a scary thought if you think about it, because if you work in the medical industry or you work um, in a place where you actually write the software for self-driving cars, you could end up killing people. Like that's, it, it is something that we have to come to realization with. Um, and I'm not saying everybody's going to end up in that scenario, but it is a scary thought. Well, I, I, I think there's also, sorry, there's like a second level effect where uh, your payroll system doesn't pay somebody their salary. You know, and oh, that, yes. like, you know, maybe not be, you may not kill people directly by like giving them the wrong medicine or crashing their car, but you may be a big factor in like making them depressed and, <laughs> you know, and so on and so forth just because your software doesn't work. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty serious stuff. Cool. I was just going to say, it doesn't even need to be a self-driving car. Just take silly things like the Toyotas a few years ago already with the failing brakes, where the accelerator had a higher priority in the software than the brakes. And yeah, so not not just Teslas. <laughs> yeah, and infrastructure type things, water, water systems, traffic control. Imagine, you know, if the robots decide, well, robots were to gridlock a city or something like that. All of that stuff is computer controlled. Yeah, so Uncle Bob's been on quite a trend lately of 
or when I say lately, probably about five years that I've been hearing about this of, um, trying to define a profession in software engineering. Sounds like you still want it. Yeah. And I, it, it makes, it makes sense. Like if we don't, if we don't come to a realization and we don't formalize standards and stuff around what we are doing, we, at some point we're going to be held accountable for, for what we're doing right now. It's like, kind of like, yeah, I just write the code and ugh, I produced the wrong thing. It's a bug. I'll just fix it. Um, and wasn't there that thing about the VWs, um, like, um, the mission, the code being buggy in the missions that was done on purpose. That was blatant misengineering and abuse of power. And that's exactly what Uncle Bob Martin touched on. Um, so who's accountable? Like, what's the repercussions of that for the developer that actually made that mistake? Or not made the mistake, but intentionally uh, defeated the ends of justice? Yeah, sounds like a criminal act, right? Correct. So, um, yeah, I th- I th- yeah, so the, basically the takeaway from that from that keynote was like, like you can't just be like this this developer that just sits and hides behind your desk anymore. You have to be accountable for the software that you write, and um, it's not always the case. Like there's large corporations where you can just like you know turn out code, make mistakes, and there's just no accountability. It's interesting. So you you kind of have like a, a programming license. Are you licensed to code, man? And it's actually not that um, far fetched of a thought. Um, um, very similar to other industries where if you're an engineer, you have to be a certified engineer to to basically um, sign this thing off as being sound, right? Yeah. Like you, you, have to, you have to be able to demonstrate basic uh, competency. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I, do, you think, do you think that we would ever be able to agree on what constitutes basic competency? Um, I'm actually not so sure. Yeah, I just ask how long did it take to finalize HTML5? If we can't agree on something like that, like uh, I don't think there's much hope of standardizing on like what defines competency in in software engineering. I don't think it's so much competency with with technology or the what's known, but it's more about competency around um, making sure that the code that you produce is tested under certain certain circumstances and that could be done in any kind of tech well so that was a keynote what else yeah. what were your what else happened on day one that you'd like to draw attention to okay so um for a very long time i've obviously wanted to see a whole bunch of other speakers um never got the privilege of actually seeing ayende Rahin, or better known as orin um is he better known the... as orin <laughs> 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 Depends on who you talk to, I guess. I heard at one point he got a a, a flight or something booked in the name of Yanderahin and obviously couldn't board it. Or uh, it might have been a hotel reservation or something like that. I suppose that's the uh, that's the trouble of living a double identity. <laughs> um, so yeah, I went to his talk. Um, it was quite cool. It was basically around his experiences in building distributed databases. Um, um, to be quite honest, there isn't much to take away from there, uh, apart from like you can go read most of the stuff in the docs. And as far as I know, um, some of the videos have been recorded and they will be available online. Um, but it was quite cool to actually see him talk and um, uh, hear his experiences building um, RavenDB and the likes. Okay, cool. 
So that link I pasted, which is your, I think it's your schedule, your personal schedule. It's quite a nice uh, site, which tracks your personal schedule through the conference. Correct. Yeah, it has links to all the, the talks. If uh, we can put that in the show notes, uh, the listeners can then track along as well. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so I actually went to some of those talks. Um, I must admit <laughs> that build stuff, um, uh, the real party, um, there's some serious parties that happen there, and the, the it says beer time, but I think beer time doesn't end. Um, it actually starts from when you arrive and it finishes when you leave. Um, <laughs> or, well, in, some, in certain cases, it continues on the plane. Um, <laughs> um, so, yes. Okay, awesome. So, um, Rob Ashton, I don't know how many of you guys are actually um, know about him or know of him. No, um, nothing. He, so... So Rob actually, um, I would say, came to fame when he decided to quit his job as a .NET developer and he decided to travel the world. He actually has a huge blog post about um, why he did it and what he did. So he decided that he was going to quit his job as a .NET developer and he's going to travel the world and um, basically set up an online calendar. You can book his time and the, and the only requirements is you basically get him to where your offices are to your desk or to your destination, um, give them a project to work on. You'll work for free as long as you provide board and lodge lodging, right? Um, which is just got a cool way to either, uh, first of all, explore the world. And second of all, get like get very, very amount of experience in different, um, industries. Okay. That sounds super interesting. So um, he's, he's um, after that stint, um, I believe that he took this job as an Erlang developer. Um, he's obviously, he never, um, he's never actually been a professional Erlang developer and everything he learned, he learned on the job. Um, so he basically um, explained or like uh, showcased what his experiences were um, learning Erlang, um, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, which is which was quite an interesting talk because most of the stuff you can actually um, take away and use and apply to on other languages that you start learning. So, for instance, don't go and rebuild scripts that a guy that's been working with Erlang for a couple of years um, have developed because he clearly knows something you don't. And starting off, you're far better just like learning a repository and using a scripts to scaffold an Erlang application. Um, and it's 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 getting up and running quickly, right? Like we want that feedback loop. And if it takes you like two days to set up a dev environment for a language that you're going to learn, you're going to either get bored or just move on to the next thing, right? Right. <laughs> okay. um, so yeah, a, it was quite a cool talk, and I really he's he's a really good speaker. He keeps you entertained, um, and it was it was quite fun because I've actually I've played with Elixir um, and Erlang for a, a bit, but it's actually cool seeing some production code um, and seeing how the projects shape. Yeah, or like yeah, the, basically the project's uh, structure. Um, I, I think that's such an important thing that a lot of people miss out. You know, like like the .NET guys, they just assume that you know how like a whole .NET solution hangs together. I mean, I'm just using these words. I don't even know what they mean. Um, and I think it's the same with like Erlang or Node or whatever. When you walk into it, how does an application fit together? How does it get packaged? What is it? How do you build it and so forth? You know, the the Ruby guys mm. have Rake and. And all Gems. the rest of it, gems, yeah, and you know, 
dependencies are managed in a thing called the gem file, et cetera, et cetera. So that's quite, that's hell of a useful. Yeah, yeah it was very cool. It was basically just a whirlwind tour of his experiences in the Erlang world. Right, right. Now, I think if you're interested in um, some more of Rob Ashton's stuff, he did a great interview with Rob Connery, Robin Rob, uh, a few years back. It was on TechPub, so it's probably now on plural sites that they got bought out. Uh, and he just talked. Uh, he just talks about his uh, his experience going around the world um, as a nomad developer. Ah, right. Okay. Uh, that's that. That would be something uh, cool to listen to. Um, as a quick aside, did everybody did everybody uh, read the Twitter storm going on with uh, Rob Connery and Troy Hunt? Oh, the Udemy thing. Yes. Yeah, I just saw the blog post. Shame, man. <laughs> Anyways, moving right along. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, um, the next talk was actually very, very interesting um, from this guy called Diego uh, Ongoro. I don't know how many of you guys have heard of him, but um, he's basically a guy that, um, as far as I recall, co-authored the paper on Raft or the concept of Raft, which is um, a consensus um, model. Um, very similar to, well, very similar to Paxos in the sense that um, Paxos is very theory-based. It's very, it's, it's apparently from the paper, I haven't read the paper, but it's like tremendously difficult to understand. Um, whereas Raft uh, was developed to be, first of all, understandable and then very practical um, to implement. Awesome. Perhaps just for a bit of background, uh, can you explain what Paxos a raft what that's all about so you know okay so um i can read you the summary and then i'll try and explain in those terms what first of all i understand and um yeah we'll take it from there so consensus is a fundamental to building fault tolerant systems but it's poorly understood we struggle to build a complete system using paxos so we developed the raft consensus algorithm um to be easier to understand since releasing our first paper draft in 2012, Raft has become implemented in dozens of libraries and systems. So the problem with, um, for instance, the distributed um, systems is the fact that um, you basically have to come to an agreement of what you consider to be a right. So for instance, let's take, for example, um, a distributed database. If I, um, if a right gets sent to me in a, like, let's say, a three node cluster, what needs to happen is I need to, uh, the, the cluster has to come to a consensus as to whether or not it's a confirmed right. So two of us three, a quorum, need to confirm the right, and then that is deemed a right. So if the node dies and comes back up, um, you are ensured that that right that you got uh, uh, an acknowledgement of is, is, is durable, right? Like it's there. Um, and that's basically what the consensus algorithm is all about is 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 the consensus about writing or reading isn't it about reading correct correct so, so, it's good, I, so the, the idea is that in the distributed system as far as i understand like you can continue even though you sort of disconnected but you've got some idea of being able to say what is the truth when somebody asks for it correct yes that is 100 percent correct yeah um, um, a, a nice analogy, I think, is is those scenes in spy movies whenever the the good guys are about to infiltrate somewhere and they all like sync their watches, right? 
which seems so easy. They all like sync their watches and then they rush off into different parts of the building and somehow manage to like pull off these incredibly complicated things at precisely the right times, <laughs> even though they're in different parts of the buildings. And even though the situation changes all the time around them, they're still able to coordinate their their activities. And I think consensus is that idea of coordinating activities in a distributed place, but it's not as easy as the movies make it out to be, right? Yeah, yeah, correct. So actually a nice description on, on consensus um, is from rof.github.io, um, and they basically explain um, the differences as to why it was needed to, to come up with another type of, um, or like something very similar to Paxos. Um, and yeah, that's obviously a lot better than I could do at explaining um, the, uh, the need for it as well as the visualization um, that, um, that they have there is because pictures is worth a thousand words, right? Yeah, yeah those little raft scope uh, images are very cool. Yes, they are. And it basically explains exactly um, what his talk about, um, what his talk was about. And he actually used these demos in his talk. Oh, okay, cool. So do you, do you feel like you know where all the stuff is now? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, so, but um, that's the one thing about conferences, right? Is that, is that you plant a seed and you go back and you know, this, you, you know it's there. And I think that's the first part of any battle is one, right? Like when you, when you want to do something and you, you have all the tools, you don't just have this hammer, you have a whole tool belt. Okay, yeah. And you come back and you, you, whatever's kind of stuck in your head is something that you're going to go and investigate further. Exactly. Yeah. Being inspired. Uh, yeah, that's, that's another thing um, because it's, it's odd. When you go to conferences, you come back with this renewed sense of um, um, enthusiasm and uh, passion for what you're doing. Yeah, I'm going to take over the world. I'm going to delete my whole code base and start over. All these thoughts, right? Yeah, I know. I think it's uh, speaking for oh, yourself, drinking Nick, beer. Speaking for yourself, <laughs> <laughs> drinking beer. I'm all, I'm with you there, man. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was quite cool listening to him talk. Um, uh, like, what what better than to hear it from the horse's mouth? Um, yeah, it's it's that's the one thing that's so awesome about. Um, like, I think going to a conference that draws so many um, like. Um, high-caliber speakers uh, is that you you tend to get it straight from the horse's mouth, um, which is quite cool. Are they going to do uh, build stuff again next year in Lithuania as well? Correct. Even um, though it's so terrible. <laughs> but the beer is good, right? Yes, yes, the beer is very good. And uh, um, so what they've actually done this year for the first time is actually um, had like a build stuff encore, um, and they did that in the Ukraine. Okay. Um, so that was uh, built stuff Ukraine in Kiev, I believe. Okay, interesting. So it's expanding. They they turning into the Borg. Wow, <laughs> cool. So yeah, um, because then you then you drank a whole lot of beer. You can't remember what happened. So it is actually on this evening where things went a bit bare, but we'll get to that now, and then you guys can cut it out um, right after I said it. But, um, of course we will. Of course we will. So um, the last talk that I actually went to was um, Greg Young. Um, so he spoke about something called Private Eye, which is a project that he's been working on for a while. 
Um, and he actually did the first showcase at the London developer or the London F-Sharp developer user group in February this year, I believe. Um, and it is basically a profiler. It started off as a profiler, profiling your .NET code from F-Sharp REPL. Okay. So let me just let that sink in for a bit. Yeah, yeah. So say again, profiling your code from an F-Sharp REPL. Correct. So profiling your .NET code from an F-Sharp REPL. Um, so imagine being able to spin up your application somewhere, right? Okay. And you say, mm -hmm. use this profiler. Okay. So with Mono, what you can do is you can say, um, use this profiler. Um, and what you can do with private eye is you can actually connect to a profiler session, right? Okay. So you open up a TCP connection and then you can start querying the information that comes out of the profiler. So you can say like an F sharp is, you can say, get me the most called methods. So, so this private eye thing's got wrappers over all the, like on the wire profile information and you can start querying it and working with it basically. Correct. So it hooks into um, the low level .NET stuff. Um, right. And it basically feeds the information um, over the TCP to you. Um, so what's nice about it is that um, the, the nature of how you actually query the data is, is quite interesting. So for instance, we have a, um, or, well, not we, but the F-Sharp um, -Sh library for private eye actually exposes a whole bunch of convenience methods, like, like most called methods, uh, time spent in methods, um, um, the number of allocations, um, and then you can obviously filter them out, um, aggregate them, combine them. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a cool way to think about how you profile your code, actually. So this gives you kind of functional transformations over your profiling information. Correct. So the profiler, does that get hooked into Mono or into your, into your runtime itself? So there's, there's two versions of, um, of the profiler backend. Um, as far as I know, there's one for uh, .NET CLR, and then there's one for Mono. Um, so they both hook into their respective um, runtimes. So, um, yeah, like I said, it's actually quite a, quite a cool way to think about um, code. And there is a demo on privateye.io, and it is currently an open beta, uh, no, closed beta. Um, so it's kind of like you go to the website, you sign up, and you get an invite, and you get um, access to um, both the Windows as well as the Mono um, uh, profilers. Um, and um, as far as I know, they're busy working on self-profiling as well. So imagine being able, able to open up your F-Shop repo, and you can say, um, cool, start the profiler. Um, X plus Y equals five or whatever you want to do, do some assignments or something, and you say, stop profiling, tell me what happened. Okay, cool. So you, could load, cool. you could load up your own code right there in the REPL, just or just a part yep. of it. Create a new instance of some class. Show me what happened. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So the uh, like like for me the problem is most of the time you like you open up some kind of like profiler application, right? Like you open up a profiler and it's be so much information at you that you actually have no idea what you looked at. Yeah. And you get just get lost in the data. Yeah. So I I do believe that this this is going to be far better for developer profiling than anything else. I mean, being able to 
determine um, why is my memory jumping up so much or like why is this thing just stalling or something like that. So just being able to look at like for instance the um, the most called methods um, would be would be quite interesting. I, I love this idea, especially in uh, hosted languages where you can connect a dynamic language at runtime. It could just be development only or even in production where you could connect this dynamic REPL up to that uh, virtual machine. Yes. And, and, you know, like stuff's happening. It's running. Okay, like let me connect the REPL. What's happening now? How much memory have you got? Like tell me the object allocations per second or whatever. Uh, I mean, Kenneth, you can talk to Groovy and Java, and I've I've certainly used that a lot in the past, where you can just at runtime in production, I want to find out what's going on now. Connect. We we used to have a little servlet where you could connect and start running some like dynamic language in that VM, doing Hibernate queries or whatever it was, and it was just so useful. So Greg also announced um, that uh, there is plans on a, of a JVM profiler, so you can actually profile your .NET code from Java. Wow. Okay, that's cool. But it's just talking that protocol, right? Correct. Yeah. If they can go the other way, now, that would be super interesting as well. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, just have a generic, like, we don't care about the VM, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... Um, basically, on this night, um, I went out with James Gill, Rob Ashton, a whole bunch of other people, Randy Shoup. Yeah. Um, it it ended, where did it end? I can't remember if it ended in the casino or the sky bar or me not being able to find my room. Yeah. Um, you, you realize, of course, that half audience is just so jealous right now. Oh, right, uh, because they couldn't find their room and I slept on the floor. No, I don't think so. Well, apart from that part, other part, going to see Uncle Bob <laughs> Martin and all the rest of it, you know. Yeah, so it was it was it was quite a fun evening. Um, we got to, I mean, got to spend some time chatting to Rob, who's become like a, some kind of a coffee connoisseur. Um, Randy Shoup, um, the, the he used to be the development director at Google um, on the App Engine team. Oh wow, um, that must be so interesting. Yeah, so I spent some time talking to him about like his experiences there, and um, um, he's got he's he's such a cool guy to talk to. Um, we went to uh, one of Lithuania's, well, one of the restaurants in Lithuania, um, with with a whole bunch of other guys. Um, there's some guys working on some very very cool stuff. Um, but I can't remember what that app was, but it was basically like a monitoring thing. But it was done in like WebGL. It's like absolutely fantastic i'll try and find the link and i'll put ask you guys to put it in the show notes but it's definitely something to look out for especially being able to visualize your application or your infrastructure in 3d and then they determine um with like some very smart algorithms and stuff like that um which of your services are like not performing great and they can actually say that this service is done because of that service yeah, uh, right. It's, it's it's such a slick way um, of uh, visualizing. I want to um, solve that problem so bad, man. Wow. Oh, uh, you should look at this thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, need, we need that link. We need that link. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um, uh, on day two, the keynote from Melvin Conway, like such an inspirational guy. Um, whenever a guy of his age 
goes to a conference and you actually see him attending the conference itself. So he he was actually in a couple of the talks that I went to, for instance, the Unikernel talk. Right. Um, I was like, like this guy drags his wife in there and they just sit there and they listen to this dude talking. I mean, it's so inspirational. I mean, at his age, I would be hoping to sip cocktails on a beach somewhere, not having to worry about like this messy thing we call computers and programming languages. Uh, but um, this is clearly something he's very, very passionate about. Um, it's also pretty cool that he's got his wife in there with him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and she, it seems like she was just as uh, enthusiastic about everything. So, yeah, it's very inspirational. So, hey, programs, if you're not married yet, try to marry a programmer. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So, um, yeah, he, he basically um, spoke about, um, like, how do we develop code? How do we develop applications? And... Like his approach is like a very hands-on approach and um, a correlation can be drawn to, um, so you know people that make pots, um, they basically go and sit in front of that turny wheel thing, they put some clay down and they actually have their hands on the, the object they want to shape. Right. Um, and the analogy was drawn that we should actually be the same, right? Like um, the tool should be invisible, um, but you should be working with the outcome um, so he basically gave us this demo of an of a prototype he's been working on, and it is so slick. I mean, this clearly this this stuff is like years years ahead of his time, um, in the sense that. So I'll try my best to give you a a text to visual representation of what this thing looked like, so you can get an idea of of um, of what he was what's what he's been building. So. Um, so imagine a canvas. So you've got an application, it's open, there's a blank canvas, and you've got your standard, like imagine Visio, if you guys have ever worked with Visio. Sure, you've got some sort of palette on the one side. Correct. Blank so, screen. Correct. So you've got like something um, I call the projector, and that would be um, like an output device type of thing. Like that would be an application, and you get a blank canvas on the application. Okay. Uh, it's just a blank application. And then you, what you can do is you can drag like an input box um, onto the onto the canvas, and you can make the input box input to the output in this projection. Okay. And then almost immediately, the text box appears on the application on the right hand side, and um, you can connect like a data source up to it. Okay. Um, so, for instance. Um, well, actually, uh, let's let's stop with the text so and the projection. Sounds awfully Delphi. <laughs> Um, yeah, the only the only difference is this is interactive, so it is running oh, as you're working okay, with the application. Okay, okay. so, so it's continuously a, running. There's a Lisp REPL in the background. <laughs> so yeah, um, <laughs> as, as as far as I remember, every everything he did, um, the application is developed or the prototype is developed using Smalltalk. Um, oh my goodness! Seriously? Uh, yes. That's, okay. Yes. And so. So to wow. give you guys an idea of how far this goes and how interactive this goes is like, um, so for instance, you type in the text box on the canvas on the left-hand side and you can actually see it updating on the right-hand side, like almost immediately. It is instantaneous, but the thing is it works both ways. So if you go type into the text box, you can actually see the data source being updated on the canvas on the left-hand side. Yeah. So there is obviously events being propagated back and forth as to what the 
truth, uh, the source of truth is, um, what is the real data, or like what is what is the actual value of the text box. Um, so he goes further and he drops like a drop down list, um, and he connects it up to um, to another projector, um, and like he types like three names into the the um, options into, into the drop down list, yeah, and he connects that up to the text box and he'll change the name in the text box and the drop-down list gets updated and the projection on the right-hand side gets updated. It's, it's, it's nuts. I mean, yeah. it's, it is, it is like we all, like I've worked in so many places where they try and develop the application that the business is going to use to develop their own applications, right? Like coding yes, yourself yes, out yes. of a job. And yeah. to be quite honest, I've never seen it actually succeed. It always ends up with this hot pot potch, like hodgepodge, like half-assed, like solution and it just never works and it, it you always just go back to what you were doing because you just couldn't get it right and business doesn't know how to work with it and yeah so anyways um so he basically oh, what's what's it greenspan's 10th law right oh yeah 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 so um he basically gave a whole talk about um like how he envisions software to be built um which is so cool i mean amount of that, that, that sounds really awesome but i thought you were going to say that it's like you're, you're in the oculus rift playing some sort of martial arts game with code like that would have been super cool if marvin conway did that i think you would have got an standing ovation <laughs> well marvin you can take my idea go for it <laughs> so um I think the the points that he mentioned with like this whole experimental development style principles that he yeah, that he basically combined together was um, unity. And first of all, no translation; it's always on. So the yeah. projection that I spoke about on the right hand side, transmi. So like the tool is invisible. It's you're actually working with the thing with the output, right? You're continuously mm, working with the thing that you're producing. Um, immediacy. So the brain immediately understands the result of each change, right? Like you can drag a text box connected to the projector. Oh, okay, now I understand what's going on type of thing. So interactivity, um, it's like this continuous immediate feedback loop. And I think that's very yeah. important. And, uh, and it's actually a trend that we've seen in the last couple of years, I would say. Um, and it's specifically if you look around. So I, I'm going to mention .NET or like the Microsoft ecosystem because um, I do feel that they've been lagging behind slightly in this, in the sense that, like when I moved over to something like Node, that continuous or that immediate feedback loop was so mm. satisfying, and you can actually see um, that they have drawn ex like inspiration from like the Nodes, the Rubies, um, all these easy to get to start with languages and runtimes um, and they've now included in what they now call the you know the core or the um, uh, the new DNX DNVM all these little like um, command line tools that basically is the little building blocks of how you build applications now um, they've tried to lessen the amount of um, overhead that you have to go through the you know the cognitive drain of file start new project and then it scaffolds so much stuff you actually have no idea what's going on um instead of yeah. just saying i want to i want a console application well uh you just need two files you need a package.json with all your dependencies and you need a c-sharp file type of thing um yeah. so you can actually see them drawing inspiration from all these other tools so. 
And, and of course, the next level up is to have the REPL. I mean, so you, you want to be in that live, that immediate world where I'm changing code. But then it sounds like what he's done, which is super cool, has added a kind of GUI on top of the REPL. Yes. That you, so you straight away, you're in the visual interactive world as well, not just the, the code interactive REPL, but a visually interactive REPL. That's super yes. cool. Yes. Um, so after his talk, I went to... I'm not even going to try and pronounce this guy's name because I try to listen to it and either I'm very deaf or, well, okay, no, I am deaf. Um, so it's... Juxty. Moitius Juxty. Yes. Something like that. Something like that. <laughs> um, so he gave us a, a rundown of unikernels, which I thought was really, really, really interesting. It's a quick poll. Do you think they're the future? you think they're going to take over? No, I don't think anything's going to take over. But I do, I do think um, that, like, also another thing, um, Docker is awesome, like, right? Like, Docker, all the things, something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Docker with unikernels. So, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I mean. Inception. Like, um, yeah, yeah. Because so, at some point we have to transcend this stuff and move on, you know. We have to build the assembly language of infrastructure. Yes. So... If, no. if, if it was going to be something, this would be it, right? Because this is as, as simple as I think you're going to get. A library that imitates OS interactions and you build it into your app and your app becomes the operating system that hosts itself. I mean, that's... That's, that's right. Nice. Yeah, we kind of like boot the app. Yes. Yeah. Um, which is quite nice because now you're getting a whole, rid of a whole bunch of things that you don't need. You don't have an operating system overhead. Um, you pretty much just have your app. Your app runs in that, that VM. Done. Blah. It's there's nothing yeah. else. Yep, I'm I'm 100 with it. I think it's the way to go. Sorry, is that similar to just uh, the compiling Go down to a static binary and slapping into that container that inherits from True? I think. No, no. This is like why? Why do you want to SSH into these things? Why have multi users, right? Does does Nginx need multiple users to run? No, it doesn't. Like so, like you can imagine a like a Docker thing that is only Nginx. Literally, that is all that is in there. There's no like process manager. There's no. There's nothing else. It's just Nginx in the entire operating. No, system. that's the way we deploy our Go code at the moment. There is no. It's just the statically compiled Go code running directly. Yeah. But if you're inside Docker... Inside Docker, yes, that's what I mean. Then, then, then you're running a full-blown Linux kernel, right? Okay, no, that makes sense. I just wanted to, like... And I think if somebody hasn't heard of unikernels, I've only ever bookmarked these things or add them to my reading list, and that's where they go to die. Yeah, so <laughs> I think, I think the, the, the idea that you can think of these things is that Docker is a container, right? And it hosts mm. your application. Think of your application as hosting the OS, yeah. So it's a flip. It's it's like the inverse of what Docker would be, or a, like a virtual machine. Um, or, or or it's almost like you're taking the piece of the OS that you need, and you're linking your app with it. Correct. Yeah. Same same thing, I guess. Yeah, it's 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 such a cool idea. Um, no, no. Is the, is this guy one of those like uh, what do you call it progenitors of unikernels? <laughs> <laughs> I would say so. Um, <laughs> he seems he seems pretty passionate about it. And the other thing is, um, he works for Amazon, right? So um, oh, there's, okay. there's a reason um, he's obviously pushing 
punting this stuff is because obviously Amazon supports um, um, being able to host unikernels um, applications. Um, and he basically gave us a rundown at the end of how you can actually do this in EC2, I, I believe. Yeah, so custom AMIs. Yeah. Mm, correct. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, I'm just looking at the title of his talk here. Unikernels in the future of secure cloud computing. Uh, for example, I saw a use case where they were booting a new unikernel for every single web request. Correct, and that's its example. If you decrease the surface, uh, the attack surface area. Yeah. So, for instance, you spin up a you spin up an OS, right? Like you spin up your app, you serve the request, and you kill yourself. Uh, yeah. So you even if no somebody penetrates that. Good luck, man. You're the only request in that entire container. Correct. It's the only. The, also, the other thing is, for instance, where is the guy that's trying to hack your system going to deploy his malicious code? What's yep. what's he going to do? Like he's going to deploy it, and then the app kills itself, and then what? <laughs> I mean, because you can't get a shell in it, right? Correct. That's also the other thing. So, the 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 fact is, you only support what you need for your app to run, and that's it. That's very interesting. I never thought of it from the security point of view, but that's absolutely it, isn't it? Correct. So you've got this massive performance overhead, but it's insanely secure. Yeah. Um, and um, he was talking about like some of these unikernels boots in like, like less than like, like 50 or 60 milliseconds, um, which, which is why um, one of the applications is to actually like to serve a request. Before that request, like you initiate the TCP connection, right? Yeah. By the time that happens, your 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 application has spun up. <laughs> that it is it is insane, but it's very cool. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So All right, I, I, we we're quite long in time here, are we guys? What's a just time check in general? We're sure. I'm. I mean, I'm happy with the pace, but so we actually only have one, actually two talks left, and then I'm done. Oh, okay, okay, cool. Let's keep going. Keep going then, man. So next up was Randy Shoup um, about his experiences with working with teams and products inside of Google and eBay. Um, and to be honest, there's just so much good stuff. Um, it is actually too much to mention. Like I'll, I'll spend the whole freaking four hours just talking about like all the good stuff. I really, really hope that the recording of his video is going to go out and people are just going to eat it up. Um, awesome. He, well, well I, I, I'm dead keen to hear it. So maybe we can book you for another session where we just talk about that stuff. It is. That's that's so interesting to me as well. I've got yeah, I've got plenty of notes. I'm happy to share it with you guys um, on on his talk. And I just it's it's like gripping stuff. It's it, it makes when you when you hear it, it makes yeah. so much sense and it seems logical. But yeah, yeah. it's like one of those things where you need to hear it for it you sink in and you're like oh okay now somebody else has verbalized it you know it must yeah, uh, yeah, must yeah. have some weight to it um and then the last talk of the last day was mark rindle um <laughs> oh man he's such a good speaker um he spoke about like just stupid crazy like programming languages um and he spoke about people that just use them in the most insane way um and basically has like four four points for making a good programming language one is it should be expressive two it should have clean syntax three it should just have enough features and four it should not be php <laughs> <laughs> that gets my vote 
<laughs> Shame, man. Poor PHP. <laughs> um, so he basically went into this. Oh, jeez, it's just it's just nuts. He spoke about Shakespeare. I don't know if you guys ever heard of Shakespeare. The yeah, yeah. Language. It's just yeah. You you nuts. you um. You, you declare actors. variables are actors, and you can increment <laughs> them by complementing them. Yes, and you decrement them by insulting them. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, it's nuts. It's like, and you can only ever have two actors on the stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is like, Yo, X, you, thou art great, and then X is X plus one, right? Yes, it's, it's just ridiculous. So. This, this, yeah, the amount of stuff that people go through, man, is just nuts. So you spoke about white space. So there's a programming language called white space. Yeah. And somebody actually wrote a coin. Um, so I don't know if you guys yeah. are familiar with what a coin is. And white space. Oh, wow. I mean, like, what? Why would you do that? <laughs> but, no, but isn't, isn't any program in white space a coin? <laughs> <laughs> The problem like, is I don't know, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. You don't like, know what the output is. You're you can't verify space. that. Yeah. <laughs> so, and what's what's nice about white space is that you can actually hide. <laughs> I you never thought hide. I'd hear those words. What's <laughs> nice about white space is. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. You yeah. can hide programs and proper <laughs> programming languages. So you, you can have like a C-shop yeah. application with like, with like a proper white space program inside of its comments. <laughs> And you can actually compile it. Like, oh, this nuts. is nuts. This is nuts. He had to go search for that Visual Studio plugin, right? Like the white space obfuscator. Oh, dear. <laughs> so he went over um, Ook, which is a programming language for orangutans. <laughs> ridiculous. It's like Ook, Ook with capitals. Yeah, like what's Ook the other one? Exclamation. Cow. There's a language called Cow, which is all, it's Moo, so it's an octal language, like M O O, but like capital M, lowercase O, capital O. Yes. Like, very the, similar to the, the entire Ook. program's readers moo 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 yeah, <laughs> people people clearly have too much time and then there's this there's this program language called Buffunge. Um, the fudge Buffunge. Buffunge. okay yes so it was a programming language specifically developed to make sure that it was difficult to compile the like, uh, language that was as difficult to compile as possible, that type of thing. Um, and there's like two features. I can't remember what the features are, but um, one of these programming languages would actually introduce bugs on compile, and I think this is it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so let goodness. me just check here quick. Oh, I can't remember if this was it, but it, it's basically like it would int introduce a random bug. All right. Um, uh, when you compile and like, or was it Malbolge? Can't remember. I think it's Malbolge. Um, but yeah, these these languages are just like in, for the criminally insane. Like, yeah. no doubt Any, about it. Anyone who builds a language like that needs to get checked out. <laughs> and what's even funnier than that is that, like, for these weird languages, like people would write coins for them as well as like Ouroboros. Yeah. Program languages, um, uh, Ouroboros programs. So, um, so Ouroboros, if you guys aren't familiar with it, is basically like like Oops. you would have a Java application. Well, an Ouroboros is the snake that eats its tail, right? Yes. So it would be like a Java program outputs the source code for a C-sharp program that outputs the original Java code. 
Yeah. Like, it's, it's nuts. Like, <laughs> why would you do that? Like, are you nuts? Um, yeah, that's. And then what happened after that day is um, there was two days of workshops, which was very cool. Um, um, Oren, Oren did one um, on distributed building a distributed database. Um, I went to one on Terraform and um, basically Vault. And what is that by the HashiCorp guys? Um, so one of the guys actually works for HashiCorp. Um, so um, James Nugent, I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. He works on the team and event store as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, he works for HashiCorp on the Terraform project. Okay, cool. So um, went to that workshop. Very, very cool. Um, it's always nice to hear how people are using it in production. Like this guy, um, the other guy would just like kill some of his production machines in AWS and just check them spin back up. It's, it's crazy. Okay, that sounds very interesting. Yeah, so, and then, yeah, that's, that was it. I got on a plane and got drunk. <laughs> mm-hmm. And managed to find your way back home to your room and bed. Hope. I did. Um, the, the thing with planes is they generally fly in the direction that you want them to. Mm. It's very useful. Very useful. It's extremely useful. Mm. What, what's it? The hardest thing about flying is the ground. <laughs> oh, dear. I hope nobody saw carte blanche last night, uh, the glorified drivers. No, no. But we, we're definitely going to get you back to talk about uh, Randy and the service architectures at scale. I think. Yeah, for an extended edition, probably. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Looking forward to it. Alrighty, uh, Kevin, Kath, any questions for Peter? I'm just jealous. It looks awesome. I've been sitting here going through a bunch of stuff that happened at that conference. And an international conference is always fun. It's yeah, something different. I would uh, recommend anybody to try and shoot for something, just like Peter did, like make a plan and make it happen. Awesome. Yeah, I've been seriously considering going over to an international conference. It's just so difficult to decide which one. I know, I know of a very good conference that you can go to. It's, it's, it's in 2016. It's a conference called Build Stuff. Yeah, in Lithuania. Uh, where's that? Lithuania, man. Vilnius. Really? <laughs> well, well, if somebody does take that serious, Peter, like, how, how expensive is that trip? I mean, you don't need to get down to exact budgets, but just like the exchange rate, do they use the euro or do they have like an old currency? So um, they actually got, they got rid of their, their, um, their currency and they actually are using the euro now. Um, Lithuania, um, I would like, I mean, if you if you're planning on going for the full conference plus the two workshops, it's going to cost you about ten thousand rand in accommodation, which is not bad. Um, you can you can basically work on almost like a thousand two hundred rand per night, which, to be quite honest, is a, is the standard of accommodation across the world. Like you can pretty much go anywhere on a thousand two hundred rand per night, um, Airbnb or whatever. So, the conference hotel is around. Um, you can like bank on like. I don't know, 100 euros a night. Um, and the conference obviously includes um, your breakfast and your lunch. Um, supper, you would generally go out with some mates. Um, and then your plane tickets there would cost you around eight grand. Um, and then the conference tickets, I am not so sure what they are, but it, I, can't, I can't remember what the conference price was, but you can you can pretty much go, a, go for less than 30,000 rand. Mm. Um, which is not bad. 
especially the caliber of people that you're going to see, the connections that you're going to make, the in, the the networking is brilliant, fantastic. It's it's definitely worth it. It's you can think of it as investing in your career. Definitely, definitely. The jealousy. We're just so jealous, man. <laughs> it's in here. Yeah. Alrighty. Um, <clears throat> no, thanks. Um, I think we've we've picked up a whole lot of links already during the the talk. I don't know, Kevin, Kenneth, if you want to add any extra links. I'd say ETCD. Uh, it's a great project out of CoreOS. It's a distributed key value store that uses the Raft algorithm. So the CoreOS guys have been punting it hard. Uh, yeah, I think it's the only thing that's relevant. And then go overseas to a conference. Like I went to Ruby Kaigi a few years ago, and it's absolutely amazing. Just do it. Okay, awesome. That's in Japan, right? Yes, I was in Tokyo. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, and if you if you get keen, you can try to speak at some of these conferences and then people will fly you there. Cool. Yeah. So from my side, nothing, uh, nothing relevant to the topic, but um, I'm going to pick well, two things. One is the Atom text editor. I've been a long-time Vim user, switched over to SpaceMax, now using Atom, and I'm really enjoying just seeing how there's such a community around it. Yeah. Um, it's really, really comfortable to work with. The community's matured quite nicely. So yeah, Atom Text Editor. Okay, awesome. I saw a nice blog post on uh, kind of turning Atom into Emacs by using ClojureScript under the covers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all JavaScript. So yeah, exactly. But now you could get back to a kind of Lisp, uh, Lisp world, and you could uh, write everything. But the guy was saying that the key bindings and things in Atom were just so much nicer. Okay, I've got to check that out. Um, and then the other thing is RubyFuser 2016, since we're on the topic of conferences, the tickets are on sale. So, yeah, if you're not going to an overseas conference, please get to RubyFuser. Yay, Cape Town. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's at the President Hotel next year. Yes, it is. Oh, okay. That's a stunning venue. So should be really it, awesome. It used to be in the gardens, didn't it, or...? No, no. I was thinking of ScaleConf. I was thinking of ScaleConf. It was at the Strand Tower Hotel originally. Then this year it was at, what is it, the Lagoon Beach Hotel. Yes. Then next year, moving to the President Hotel. Complete with Firepool. <laughs> all right. Um, we were talking about all these crazy languages earlier, and I just wanted to add a link into that 99bottlesofbeer.net website, which has the most crazy collection of languages implementing the 99 bottles of beer song uh, all the way Shakespeare through all the rest of them you'll find crazy examples there and it's it's really worth a laugh cool well Peter thank you very much for being on the podcast this evening it's been awesome and I look forward to chatting to you again sometime awesome thank, thank you, you for letting me do my picks cool oh, you still get more picks <laughs> <laughs> So have you, how much have you been drinking? I'm just drinking root beer. Oh, yeah? Okay, what are your picks, man? What are your picks? So, um, since I spoke about um, that Ook language, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, I've been in search of a Windows shell for a very, very long time. Commando was good, but um, it lacks certain things, right? Like, for instance, the nice little, um, like the airline, like, stuff that you get with um with the terminal in osx and like other 
the other shells. So a baboon is uh, is a shell that seems like like a pretty good uh, pretty good uh, shell for using Windows that um, gives you. I think uh, they support ZSH or ZShell, um, which is quite cool. Um, Dude, what are you talking about? Ook baboon shell for Windows. Uh, is that like a thing? Like, are you so being... baboon? Yes, <laughs> baboon is a thing. Oh. Well, that's, I, I didn't know whether you were being serious or not. So wait, there we go. Okay, so now you can go. You guys ah, can see the whole okay. story. Awesome, um, baboon. B a b u n. Dot get up. Dot i o. Baboon. Okay. Yes. Hey. Okay. Oh, cool. Yeah, so it's very cool. Turning okay. Windows into Unix. Oh, okay. That's what you want, eh? Oh, it's a Sigwin. Yeah, yeah. Cool, man. Awesome. 20 um, years later. So, so the problem is that it's currently it's very slow, which kind of turned me off of it. But um, uh, hopefully I can drum up enough um, enthusiasm around it and like, get the 4 billion people that listen to this podcast to contribute and make it faster so I can use it. Yeah, yeah. It's a... Uh, what a terminal with a package manager oh, it's nuts this is, man this is crazy this is, this is inception yes so you, you like boot up windows you don't like it you want to run linux so you install this thing <laughs> this thing comes with its own package manager you forget that you're running windows it's like kind of mental man what's going on here <laughs> Whoa. Uh, this okay. package manager section is getting a bit ridiculous though. Yeah, like yeah. I go through the terminal into next thing I'm running Docker containers inside the, the terminal is an OS running Docker. <laughs> a unicorn, right? Unicorn. So. Oh dear. I know. There was that whole thing of using Bower to install dependencies, but you install Bower through a depend through a package manager. That's yeah. NPM. How do you install NPM? <laughs> oh no, through a package manager. That's homebrew. Yeah. <laughs> What's homebrew? Something that gets installed, man. Yeah, it's a Ruby script that installs. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Yeah. So my second pick is Terraform. Um, it is a way for you to basically manage your infrastructure um, via code. Which is quite cool if you haven't checked it out. Anything that HashiCorp produces is gold. That's basically it. Um, so check it out if you haven't. It's pretty cool. Um, nothing better than to 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 like being able to check your infrastructure into source control. Um, <laughs> sounds weird. Okay, and the last my last pick is Packer, um, which is a way for you to provision. Uh, images or to create images. So, for instance, like you want to AMI and AWS, um, how do you always consistently create like the same image? Yeah. Um, you're not going to freaking SSH into an AMI and then do some stuff and then snapshot the image, right? It can, so, it can pretty much build any images, as far as I know, right? Correct. I mean, I've, so I've used it, Packet to build like custom CentOS 7 correct. installs. So. so, what's nice about it is that Let's say you want a development box, but you also want to provision an AMI. Um, but like the the steps is exactly the same. So what you do is you actually produce two outputs. You produce yeah. a VMware box as well as an image in AWS. Yeah, I was I was cool. building a Vagrant machine, and then when we were ready to go to production, you just change that target, and it produces yes. the production build. Yeah, correct. Which is like I said, anything that HashiCorp touches is just gold. Yeah, very very cool. And that's it. Okay, so are you happy now? You got to, got to give your picks. Yes, I am happy now. That is that's great. Thank you so much.
Thank you. Yeah, Peter, it's been a great chatting. Yeah. Awesome. We no, look forward to having you back. Having um, anything else, guys? Not from my side. Nope. Cool. Thanks for listening, everyone. Good night. Cheers. Good night.